Bellamy kicked the door in, already knowing what he would find. She was leaning against the wall, hunched over, her head lolling forward so that long wisps of greasy hair hung over her face. The room smelled of despair, stale cigarettes, a faint scent of urine, and the unmistakable scent of decomposition. The AC unit vainly chugged in the apartment window, its fan whirring with the intermittent crackle of oscillating debris particles. He touched her wrist to confirm what he already knew, and then he slid the hair away from her face. Her nostrils were tinged a pale red, the telltale foam that occurs when an opiate overdose victim drowns in their own pulmonary fluids. It was different when it was someone that you knew. Someone who lived across the hall for long enough that you got to know their schedule. Rarely a sound from the apartment until nighttime, when she would escape her hole after sleeping all day. For only as long as it took to sell off parts of her soul in order to get the next fix. Sometimes the lure of nothingness is far greater than the strength of will it would require to hope. Bellamy stumbled down the sidewalk as he downed the last swig, tossing the empty bottle into the brush. He could feel the anger coursing through him, beating in his ears, tightening his throat. He veered off the sidewalk into the woods, cutting through a field toward a neighborhood park. About halfway across the open space, he tossed back his head and roared, unable to keep it all in. His grief was anger turned outward, and the targets he intersected with were always victims of opportunity, whether he knew them or not. He'd seen them just before he entered the woods next to the park, their car in a secluded spot with the interior light on, a heated exchange brewing between a man and a woman. The tingling in his spine filtered through his limbs and set off a series of lightning-quick ticks that swelled to a bone-cracking crescendo, culminating in a full-body shudder. The man-wolf bounded out of the brush, sinking his still-human teeth into the man's neck, knocking him backward. He felt the female struggle against his back paws and recoil against the car door as blood gushed into his mouth. A keening wail overtook her, and he could feel the nails of his back paws digging into her flesh as the wolf bore down, and he allowed the change to fully overtake him. The last thing he heard was a scrambling clamor against the car door as she finally got it open and her body land on the ground with a thud. The screaming never stopped. For him, it never stops. The Dex Morneau series by Jenny Decker. Narrated by Greg Kreitz and Jenny Decker. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. New Orleans is the city equivalent of a fruitcake. Okay, relax. I can feel some of you leaning up in your seat, 
positioning yourselves in the just about to interject position, universally conveyed by a reluctant hand that's about to shoot up, but stops halfway because you don't want to be that person. Let me save you the anxiety. I am making the comparison in the most appreciative way. Fruitcake looks weird. A dense block of something approximating cake or bread filled with chunks of something. I'm not sure anyone knows exactly what. What I do know is that it's soaked in spirits. A bread cake soaked in liquor. The French Quarter is known as a place where people come from far and wide to drink themselves silly and wander the streets until the wee hours of the morning. But New Orleans itself is also imbued in a different kind of spirits. Dogma that relies heavily on history and nature, ancestors and spirits. Also, fruitcakes aren't just lying around. If you're seeing a fruitcake, it's a good bet it's a special occasion. They're typically served during celebrations. New Orleans French Quarter is a living, breathing celebration on most nights. You're apt to see things in New Orleans you've never seen before. You might even leave the place unable to explain the experience. And that's probably the best description of eating a piece of fruitcake that I can come up with. There's something satisfying about it. But if asked to qualify what that is, you'd be hard-pressed to get any response other than a shrug. A fruitcake can hang around a long time. It's preservation attributed to the liquor it contains. Something I can identify with. I, too, am equal parts whiskey and man. Really? You're making him a werewolf? Carla wasn't as incredulous as she was exasperated. Well, good, I thought, as I pulled the wrought iron chair away from its matching table. We were in a corner room in a hotel in the French Quarter, and our balcony wrapped from the side to the front, affording us views of the street below as well as the alley between us and the building next door. I sat down, fully expecting Carla's questioning on the werewolf matter to be of no relief to my pounding head. People aren't going to like this. You know what I don't like, Carla? I don't like people reading my works in progress. I don't like people rifling through my laptop when I'm passed out drunk, digging their filthy little opinionated mitts through my musings. I was turning the protagonist in my crime series into a werewolf for the series finale. Carla apparently took umbrage. I had hoped this little vacation would crowbar your ass out of your writer's block. I guess I just expected... She redacted the mean shit that she absolutely meant, but for whatever reason, today, Carla decided not to choose violence. Maybe it was the plate of strawberry blintzes she'd just consumed. I grabbed the fork from her plate, speared the last two pillows of crepe and ricotta cheese, slid the fork around the plate to sop up as much of the remaining strawberry filling as I could, and shoved it in my mouth, dragging the back of my hand across my lips to catch the drippings. I set the fork down, nicely. That'll teach you to read something that's not finished. Or maybe it'll teach you to significantly lower your expectations. But a werewolf, Morneau? Seriously? 
Why are you phoning it in? Is the writing bad, Carla? No, it's not. She leaned back in her chair and pulled off her sunglasses, squinting up into the sun, her red hair aflame beneath it. I mean, it's not like you wrote. The killer ejaculated, spurting what will eventually be the product of a CODIS hit that will change the life of some very undeserving police detective. But I did write that in book one, about a decade ago. And it wasn't a bad line. Yeah, it was. Carla looked at me, knowing exactly what I just said, even though I hadn't said it aloud. Okay, then. What's the problem? The problem is that you're just now telling Bellamy's origin story in book eight. Books one through seven passing themselves off as a detective series, and maybe leaving your long-suffering readership disappointed in your sudden and very sharp U-turn down Werewolf Lane raises no concerns? Not from me. The wolf stretched out lazily next to the body, lapping at the pool of blood. He had given up trying to explain himself to himself. It proved to be an exercise in self-flagellation and squandered time. He did not suffer fools well, so the early years of suffering against the grain of himself had hardened him. Eventually, he would discover a haunting beauty in his desire to go forth into the world hunting whatever and whomever he desired, within the confines of common sense, of course. Now this he to which we are referring is Bellamy, the gentleman sitting naked next to the disemboweled body with what's left of the man's entrails looped around his neck, sucking the blood off his fingers one by one. It all started as most things start with a question, or rather, a search for an answer. Bellamy liked asking questions. Perhaps needed is a better way of putting it. People, their actions, motivations. He looked closely at people, and perhaps a therapist somewhere might opine that it was his way of looking at himself. If he couldn't explain himself to himself, he was pretty good at looking at a set of facts and determining how they resulted in a conclusion. There was nothing else he had ever been particularly good at, aside from dining on victims while inhabiting the body of his alter ego, a 200-pound black wolf. While some might consider this a glaring error in moral symmetry, Bellamy had long ago sloughed off the desire to reconcile the two. The life of any boogeyman must, by nature, be a solitary one, best suited to those with an insatiable desire to be left the fuck alone accompanied by a profession that allows one with that temperament to earn a living. And so it was. And so he was. A man who worked as a detective and occasionally turned into a wolf. Do you know what allegory is, Carla? Well, I'm guessing you're about to explain it to me like I'm a second grader. You do that when you're hungover. I wasn't bothering to match my stride to hers. I was maneuvering the sidewalk at a rapid clip because I was hungover and wanted to get today's Jolene checks off the to-do list. We'd been hunting her for two months. Might have even just missed her a few times. 
but were ultimately having no luck finding the needle in the haystack that would bring me any closer to home. Back to Detroit, because I'm too old and apathetic for this shit. The shit in question being the most recent problem Carla felt needed solving in order to keep the hunk of rock we're floating around on from spinning into oblivion. Carla Danning cannot function without a cause, and every cause is a diversion, me being the biggest one. An allegory is a story with an underlying message. It's a device to tell a more complex story in an entertaining way. But it's not what you've been writing in books one through seven, Morneau. Your publisher's not going to like it, I can tell you that. I don't give a shit. I pulled open the glass door to the first bar of the day and got a blast of cold air for my effort. We would do this six or seven times a trip, up and down Bourbon Street, every strip club, because we figured that was the most likely way Jolene would be making money if she was still here in the area. We got an early lead that she worked for a time at Stripper King before we arrived in town and a few people along the way had what happened to be sightings of her in other clubs. But she had left Stripper King abruptly and hadn't sought work in any of the other clubs yet. It had been a month. After questioning the barmaid and a couple of dancers, we got the same answers we'd been getting for weeks. Still haven't seen her. We'd worn out our welcome, despite having been handing out 20s to each person we asked. I still think we need to chase that Don't lead about the... say sex trafficking to me again, Carla. Sex trafficking thing. We have zero evidence that Jolene is being held somewhere against her will. We have zero evidence that anything nefarious has happened to her. We have nothing but a couple of girls who say she worked with them for a couple weeks and then left town with her boyfriend. Well, who is this boyfriend, Morneau? I don't know, Carla. Why would she only work for a few weeks and then leave? I stopped abruptly on the sidewalk and turned around. Carla slammed into my chest. I spoke down into her upturned face. Maybe she didn't like the job. Or maybe this boyfriend has got her locked up in one of these buildings and he's selling her body to the highest bidder every night. Carla waved her arms out toward the buildings on Bourbon Street. Every building with more than a single story in the French Quarter was suspect. That's because Carla's been watching too much local news, doing a little too much internet surfing. A recent sex trafficking bust had netted the U.S. Marshals a 16-person rescue and 30 arrests, which resulted in 17 of those being charged. You couldn't turn on the television or enter a bar that didn't have at least one screen devoted to the wall-to-wall -wall coverage. Do you need that to be the case, Carla? Excuse me? Do you need to believe Jolene is being held somewhere against her will? Why are you being such an asshole? Carla said it a little too loud and too many heads turned in our direction for my comfort. Older, disheveled man. Younger, more put-together female. Well, you can understand why I wouldn't want to be on the ass end of that interaction. Rather than grabbing her arm, I slid my hand into hers and continued to walk at a pace that was in keeping with her five-foot-nothing frame. 
Because I never held her hand, Carla was momentarily stunned into acquiescence. Carla, I need you to think reasonably, rationally. Put on your private investigator's assistant hat for a minute and consider the facts. We know she worked for a couple of weeks at a local strip club. That is literally all we know. Nobody that we've spoken to even knew of a boyfriend. One person guessed she had left with her boyfriend. A boyfriend this witness had never seen or, upon further questioning, even knew existed. She opined. She surmised. She theorized. Jolene never told a single person she worked with that she had a boyfriend, nor did anyone ever see her with a male that could have approximated a boyfriend, whether at work or anywhere else. She didn't just vanish into thin air, Morneau. No, she didn't, but we have exactly as much proof that she did as we have that she's being sex trafficked or pimped out or had a boyfriend. Inserting Jolene into the most recent local news story might give you threads to pull, but those threads aren't attached to anything but distraction, something you make a steady diet of. Jolene is not Trudy. Jolene is not your son. We were back at the corner outside our lodgings, and Carla was just about to ascend the back steps off the alley. She turned around to face me, and because she was standing on the second step, we were at eye level. Do not bring up my son to teach me a lesson ever again. Do you understand me? And while you're at it, you can keep Trudy's name out of your mouth, too. She pushed me aside and walked past me to the corner, then turned right and disappeared. 